text that we consider this evening is John chapter 9, verses 24 through 38. Although we will be drawing, of course, from the whole of the chapter, but we will reread verses 24 through 38 of John chapter 9. Then again called they the man that was blind and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. Then said they to him again, What did he to thee? How opened he thine eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and ye did not hear. Wherefore would ye hear it again? Will ye also be his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spake unto Moses. As for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. The man answered and said unto them, Why, herein is a marvelous thing, that ye know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened mine eyes. Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. They answered and said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are not told exactly the place where this miracle and these events took place, but it is likely that the miracle and this disputation took place near the temple. And probably the Lord had healed this blind man right close to the court of the temple where beggars were wont to ask for alms. Jesus had been to the temple recently, and now he comes back again in John chapter 9, and he sees this man born blind. Now, we're not told exactly the time when this miracle took place. Or rather, we are told the the day when this miracle took place. And it took place on the Sabbath day. And that's not an insignificant detail with regard to this history, because it would be on the point of the Sabbath at which the Pharisees would would hound this man and accuse Jesus of being a sinner for making clay and healing and doing things like that which did not abide by their legalistic Sabbath day rules. So Jesus comes to the temple, we read in verse 1, and as he passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. Now the disciples saw him too. But the disciples saw here someone who had sinned, or at least his parents had sinned, which explains why he was born blind. And they asked Jesus that question, which, which is it? Was it this man's sin or the sin of his parents that resulted in his being born blind? 
But Jesus saw there in that man born blind far more. He saw there one in whom he would glorify God, someone through whom he would make known the mighty works of God by this tremendous miracle. It was the third way. Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be manifest in him. That was a tremendous miracle. The reaction of the crowd, the reaction of the neighbors, even the Pharisees themselves in their interrogation of the man, all indicate how tremendous this miracle was, making very clear who Jesus is and where he is from. But Jesus, having done that miracle, he left the scene. The neighbors accost this man born blind, ask him questions, hear the name Jesus, bring him to the Pharisees, and then the interrogation began. And in that interrogation, the Pharisees pressured and battered him with questions, all designed in some way to make this man back off his confession of Jesus. But that's exactly what he did. He confessed to Jesus. And he didn't back off one bit. A bold confession of faith here in John chapter 9. Thus, an appropriate text on the occasion of the confession of faith of Uella and Ashley, a confession of faith here in John chapter 9. And with regard to the public confession that you have made, that implies now a declaration that you are of the party of the living God in this same Jesus, record whose works and whose person we read in Holy Scripture. What we learn from John chapter 9 is that there is opposition to confession. What we see the Pharisees doing here is nothing new under the sun, but it has been the experience of the church throughout all ages, opposition to the confession of Jesus and to the confession of his truth. And so here we have this man born blind, making bold to confess his name, even when it meant losing everything, losing his name, being cast out of society, excommunicated, made a pariah. He confessed by the grace of Jesus Christ. And so let us consider this, this text under the theme, the bold confession of the man born blind. Noticing in the first place his confession, noticing in the second place its boldness, and noticing in the third place the explanation. How, how can we explain it that this man did what he did here in John chapter 9? The occasion of this confession of faith in the first place was Jesus' tremendous miracle that he wrought on this man born blind. He gave sight to the blind, just as the prophet Isaiah said he would do in the Old Testament. Now, who was this man? Well, just put yourself in his shoes for a moment. He was born this way. Born blind, never saw a thing in his youth. Throughout all his life, had never seen the blue sky above Jerusalem, had never seen the colors of green in springtime, had never seen the flowers that grew up there on Mount Zion, had never seen what his parents looked like, had never seen his brothers and sisters. If he had them, he was born blind. And that's how Jesus found him there by the temple. More than that, he was in misery, something not unrelated to his blindness. Not receiving the support of his parents and being blind, he was reduced to begging outside the temple. 
blindly asking the passers-by for alms. That's, that was his mode of subsistence, begging, a miserable occupation without the support of everyone who should have supported him. And then, in addition to that, there was that attached to his condition, a stigma. You see that come out in the disciples' question. This, you almost can't believe their question, but that was the stigma that attached to a, a condition like that. Who sinned, this man or his parents? No mercy there, no compassion, but trying to discover the, the sin cause of his special need and his disability. And Jesus, in his wisdom, go, just blows that question away, chooses neither alternative, and brings out the positive purpose why he was born this way. That the works of God should be made manifest in him. And that's what Jesus did. Spittle and clay, with this blind man listening to Jesus' conversation now, Jesus spits on the ground, makes clay out of the spittle and the dust. The next thing you know, this blind man feels this being applied to his eyes. And then he hears a strange request, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which by translation means sent, not without significance. And so this blind man, you can already see his readiness to obey Jesus, promptly obeys, goes to the pool, with the clay on his eyes, he washes himself, and he came seeing through these. The first time in his life he saw all of the colors and all of the sights of reality flew into his consciousness, and he saw things he had never seen before. What a happy day for that man. But there was more than the miracle of healing of his physical sight. Jesus, by that work, did something in this man's heart. And Jesus quickened there in that man's heart faith in Jesus Christ. Now even though we know that later on in the chapter, Jesus would lead that man further and deeper, would give his faith more knowledge and a more exact description of who Jesus is, but already in John 9, we're going to come back to this in the third point, there's something in this man's heart that would not give up Jesus. That's what Jesus did to him. He saw... Jesus, in other words, in a way that the Pharisees refused to see. And you see that confession come out throughout these verses. Now, the focus of the sermon this evening is not on the miracle as such, although, of course, that is an important aspect. And we do want to see the typical significance of that miracle. The typical significance Jesus himself teaches in verse when he says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And that miracle of giving sight to this blind man was a picture of Jesus, the light of the world, who gives sight to the blind spiritually so that they see and know and trust in the living God through Jesus Christ. By nature, we are blind, with a blindness far worse than the blindness of this beggar outside of the temple. We read in the canons that man by the fall entailed upon himself blindness, a horrible darkness, spiritually considered now, a darkness in which man refuses to acknowledge the truth of God in Jesus Christ. He's blind to the truth, this kind of willful blindness against the light, being alienated from the light 
and alienated from the life of God in Jesus Christ. That's the darkness and the blindness that is ours by nature. And as we read in in the scriptures as well, those who are blind and dark, they walk in darkness. So that that blindness and darkness manifests itself by horrible works, dark works, walking in sin and walking in evil. And even when the light comes, so horrible is this blindness that men love darkness rather than light, as the Lord himself says. Christ is the light of the world. Even as he says more than once in the book of John, I am the light of the world, and Christ is come, that whosoever believeth in him should not abide in darkness. And that wonderful, miraculous spiritual work is what he does. He opens our eyes. He gives sight to the blind. Peels off the scales that are on our eyes by nature, spiritually spiritually speaking. He causes us to see him, causes us to know God, which is life and life eternal, causes us to love God and to love his son, Jesus Christ, through the gift of faith. So that we read in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that work of illumination, Christ accomplishes by his Holy Spirit. And you see the Holy Spirit here as well, who is so often in the book of John, or at least in one other place, typified by the waters. The waters of the pool of Siloam now, the waters of Jesus Christ, whom God sent into this world to give sight to the blind. And the Holy Spirit does that work, gives us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that understand and believe the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. Now, as we said, that miracle was the occasion for this man's confession of faith in John 9. Leading up to that, the blind man comes back from this pool The neighbors see him, and they had seen him many times before, the man who was blind and begged for alms at the temple. But now they can hardly believe their eyes, their mouths, their jaws must have hit the ground as they see the same man seeing, walking without any assistance or aid, probably jumping in the air and skipping like a young child, so excited, so happy at this miracle that Jesus wrought. And so the neighbors hardly being able to believe it, begin to ask themselves, is this, is this the same guy? Is this that man who was born blind? And so tremendous was the miracle that there are some who are even saying, no, it can't be. He's like him, but this can't be the same person. So that the man himself has to shout, no, I am the one. I am the man. And now I see And then they asked him how he saw, and then that's when the man confessed the name Jesus in the first place. He says in verse 11, a man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed mine eyes, and what follows? Now one of the questions that we have to at least consider is why did the neighbors bring this man born blind to the Pharisees? And likely the neighbors knew when they heard that name Jesus, 
They knew exactly where the Pharisees stood in relationship to Jesus. And so when they heard that name Jesus, they probably thought to themselves, we have to tell the Pharisees. At the least, they brought him to the Pharisees in order that they might render proper judgment on the case. Likely they themselves knew by the report of the man born blind that Jesus had violated the legalistic Sabbath rules of the Pharisees. So they bring him to the Pharisees. But at worst, these neighbors themselves wanted to implicate Jesus and get him on Sabbath violation. Whatever the case may have been, he comes to the Pharisees and that's when the interrogation began. One thing after another. Here they ought to be glorifying God. Here they ought to be praising God and Jesus Christ, acknowledging who Jesus is and where he is from, but they will not. They refuse, and they do everything they can in one way or another to get this man to recant, to get this man to say something that might implicate Jesus. They ask him all kinds of questions. They disbelieve his blindness and bring his parents in. Then they come at him again and say, give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. And they don't stop there either. They begin to revile him and mock him, all trying to get him to fold. But he would not. This man born blind would not. But in fact, the stronger they came, the more bold he was. He would not back down. He would not stand off his confession and it ended up with him being cast out and likely sometime in the future excommunicated, ostracized, the consequences of confession. Now what was his confession? He confessed Jesus. Even though later on in the chapter, Jesus himself will lead that man to a deeper and fuller knowledge of who Jesus is, already before that he confessed Jesus. We see that in several ways. In the first place, he confessed the work of Jesus. This man, Jesus, explains why I see. And again and again, that came up. The Pharisees called him a sinner, called him this or that. He said, one thing I know, that I was blind, but now I see because of this man, Jesus. Further, the blind man confessed that Jesus is a prophet. Verse 17. What sayest thou of him, that he hath opened thine eyes? He said, he is a prophet. But they didn't want to hear that. More than that, verses 30 through 33, we see him confessing Jesus further. They tried to say Jesus was a sinner because he didn't punctiliously keep their legalistic Sabbath rules, but went about healing on the Sabbath day. And this man would not have that. And he gives an irrefutable argument why that's not the case. If any man, or that's verse 31, we know that God heareth not sinners, that is, someone who does not fear God. But if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. So there you have this man confessing the integrity, the righteousness, the devoutness of Jesus. Verse 27 and 28, you have an implicit confession that he is Jesus' disciple. They say, you're Jesus' disciple, we're Moses' disciples, and this man did not object. But the most important aspect of his confession in verses 1 through 34 is that verse 33. 
He confessed that Jesus was from God. He confessed that Jesus was of God, and that was the point of all points. That was the point that the Pharisees refused to acknowledge, that this Jesus of Nazareth was from God. And so for him to say this now in the company of these Pharisees, that was a bold confession. That was a deep confession. And it's at that point then that the Pharisees cast him out. Now how does this apply with regard to confession of faith? That's the occasion this evening, public confession of faith. An occasion at which we rejoice. Now public confession of faith, what is the meaning of that confession? Well, with respect to the covenant seed, negatively, confession of faith is not someone becoming a member of the church or becoming a member of God's covenant with respect to the covenant seed. And that's evident from the baptism form itself, question and answer 74 of the Heidelberg Catechism. We baptize the children of the covenant as members of God's church and covenant. Positively, this public confession of faith is the fruit of grace through instruction, through the catechism room, through the, the instruction at home. The fruit of grace through instruction, whereby the young man or the young woman publicly embraces his baptism or her baptism in the assembly of the congregation, publicly takes upon himself or herself the covenant vows unto the Lord. And through public confession of faith, the young adult takes the seat at the Lord's table that had been reserved for him or her already at his or her baptism. Now the public confession of faith implies just that, a confession of faith. It implies now, you Ella and you Ashley, that you have declared publicly before the congregation that you are of the party of the living God in Jesus Christ. Believing, acknowledgement of God's truth revealed in Holy Scripture, faith resolved to lead a new and a holy life. Now John chapter 9 and the applications that we are going to be making this evening are not so much to do with the public confession of faith, but the confession of faith to which we all are called in our life here below. This is not the first time you have confessed. Already the young child confesses in his own way and in his own measure by his words and by his actions. And neither will this be the last time that you make confession of faith. That's the calling of every Christian, every disciple of Jesus throughout the duration of his life. Confess his name even in the face of opposition and consequences. he is, the Lamb of God, Son of God and Son of Man, Emmanuel, the Messiah, Savior, Lord. His truth we confess, truth which natural man does not receive. And even by our life we confess, we declare to all whose we are and whom we serve by our very conversation in the midst of this ungodly world. And now that confession has a personal flavor that in John 9. This is not just some person out there just confessing. But this 
is someone with whom we have to do. That's the personal aspect of salvation. Look in the personal aspect of salvation. Van Dorn says, One thing I know that whereas I was blind, now I see. And this is the one who did our confession as well. That's the height of her catechism, which, which does not let us get away from any Lord's Day without applying the teaching thereof personally. This is our Lord, and by faith we say, my Lord and my God, concerning Jesus. So with regard to our confession, let it bear that stamp. Let it be evident that we're, we are not just speaking of someone over there, someone who is the Savior and Lord of in this life, it's a bold confession that God has done. The boldness that you see exemplified by this beggar, who was born blind, but he makes bold to contend against the doctors, the lawyers, the leaders, the Pharisees, the very church of his day, he makes bold to confess Jesus. That was in the face of opposition and pressure. This man was faced with almost immediate opposition. You can already feel it in a way with the, with the questions of the neighbors. You, you get the sense that they were of a similar mind to the Pharisees here, although that's not, that's not explicit and not necessarily indicative. But the reason for the opposition and for the pressure is given in verse 22. His parents very much told the Pharisees, Yes, this is our son, and yes, he was born blind, but they didn't go any farther than that. Why not? These words spake his parents because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue, excommunication. And that was the word on the street, as it were, so that the Jews trafficking in Jerusalem, they knew that that was going on over there by the leaders. And the leaders made sure that that news would trickle through the, the people of Judah in an attempt to muzzle the mouths of anyone who would dare And so you see that hostility and opposition come out here. Now why is it that they were hostile to Jesus? came and he exposed them for hypocrisy, exposed them for exposed the took their merits out of their hands, their contended merits, made bold claims that they could not or that they would not and could not. That Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus and his Father are one, that before Abraham was, I am. And again and again, they picked up the stones. So when this man born blind began speaking positively about Jesus, they set upon him like a pack of wolves to get him to, to be quiet. 
They ask him, they probe him, who did this? They find out the details. They say, this sinner, he does not have a father. This man keeps saying, then they disbelieve and they learn that the man has come in. His parents don't have him. Then they ask him again, give God the glory. Give God the praise, verse 24. We know that this man is a sinner. And even the very very way that was put, you can feel the pressure that they were exerting on him. Then he takes that an even bolder stand for Jesus and for the cause of Jesus Christ. And he says, why do you keep asking? Have you already heard what I said? You don't want to hear it. And they revile him and they mock him and they shut him down. And he says, no, this man is not a sinner. This man worships God. This man does the will of God. This man is from God. And then they revile him some more. That was a bold confession that he took. And his boldness can be seen, too, from the consequences that he experienced confessing Jesus. Even with regard to his family, there was a certain parting of the ways there. His parents would go so far, but they would not go farther. This man confessed Jesus. And so even there you see a parting of the ways in his own family. You see the consequences that he experienced in verses 28 and 34. They reviled him. And then verse 34, they, they trample all over him and they say, you were born in sin. Are you going to teach us? So they take advantage of his, the blindness with which he was born, turn it against him, and they cast him out. Now in verse 34, and they cast him out, that was a portent of what was to come. That was a portent that this man being cast out in that way was now public enemy. That this man was now on the outside. They ostracized him. They pushed him to the fringes. And upon excommunication, they would have treated him as a leper, an untouchable. Thus the consequences. But even as it was in the days of Jesus Christ on earth, so it is now with us, his church, who remains. Confession brings opposition. Confession brings hostility. So that the confession that you make, Allah and Ashley, and that we are all called to make as Christians, disciples of Jesus, do not expect it to be any other way. Expect the consequences and expect the opposition. But why? Why is it that way? The answer is that man, by nature, will not receive the truth of Jesus Christ, who is the truth, who is the light. In John chapter 3, verse 19, the Lord says these words. And this is the condemnation, that light is coming to the world. And men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. So what that means 
is that our confession of the light and our living and walking as children will bring that enmity and that opposition. The light with which we are called to shine exposes darkness. It exposes sin. It makes manifest and it reproves the evil. And man by nature and the the wicked world will not tolerate that. But as Jesus says, if they have persecuted me, so shall they persecute you. If you were hated, know this, that they hated me before they hated you. Another way to look at it is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is an offense to man apart from grace. 1 Corinthians 1, the apostle speaks of of Christ crucified, which is to the Jews a stumbling block and is to the Greeks foolishness. And the confession of Jesus is that offense. It's one thing for a man to say he was Jesus was a good man. But when a man starts saying that Jesus is the alone Savior, and that there is salvation in none other, and that any other name by which man goes for salvation is false, when you confess Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Word made flesh, the enmity comes. It's an antithetical confession. Think about the truth that God is everything and man is nothing. The gospel of sovereign and particular grace that robs man of his merits, that reduces and is an assault upon the pride of man. By nature, that's not a truth to be received. There is opposition. There is hostility. It is there. Now, there are times in the history of the world where that opposition becomes more or less manifest. Times in the history of the church when it was greatly manifest to the point of martyrdoms and being burned at the stake. And even today, you can see the opposition and the enmity that it is there and that it is waiting to explode in a way that man has never seen before. What might that opposition look like? Perhaps it's opposition at work. Perhaps it's when your coworker finds out that you're a Christian, himself or herself an unbeliever, and that irritates him or her to know that you are opposed to the way of life that this person is living. So that the very confession of Jesus by word and deed brings out that enmity. Maybe it's in college. When the professors and everyone sitting around you puts all kinds of pressure on unspoken but felt pressure and in some way to muzzle the Christian from saying the truth. Even with regard to the false and the apostatizing church, the Belgian Confession says that she persecutes those who live holily according to the word of God and rebuke her for her errors. So that even the false church joins in this program of opposing and being hostile to the truth of Jesus Christ. Now that doesn't mean that by our confession we try to irritate people. But as the catechism teaches us, we desire by our confession our neighbor's good. And we ought to have a hope that if it it should be God's will that we might even win our neighbors. But the fact that there will be opposition and enmity is manifest in more than one place in Holy Scripture. And there are consequences as well. Can't we see that now? 
how the church and every member to which the name of Jesus attaches is treated, like the apostle says, as the scum of the earth, the offscouring of the world, so that our names are trampled, so that we are mocked and ridiculed as old vestiges of the past. The consequence of being cast out, of being a pariah to society, and God forbid, even in one's own family. Confession, therefore, requires boldness. To speak, to walk, even when the pressure is being heaped upon us, even when the world gathers around us and would wring our necks if we should speak Jesus and speak his truth, requires boldness. Do not stand down in that confession. Do not back off, even as this blind man here would not back off his confession. That's the lesson that the Lord teaches us by this history, among so many other things. But what explains it? And how can we? What explains that this man here in John 9 did? Just consider it for a moment, this man's boldness. Here is a man born blind, a beggar, probably clothed with rags, hardly educated, if at all. And here he is now contending with the doctors. Here he is now contending with the leaders of Judah. Here he is confessing before the Pharisees themselves, knowing very well the consequences that his confession will bring. And they could not get him to stand down. And what explains it? Well, in the first place, mark that it is not of man. It's the boldness of faith. That otherworldly faith, which is a gift of God. Here you have the boldness of faith, even though this man will be led to a deeper knowledge when Jesus sought him out. Already now you see faith in this boldness of confession. But even deeper, when you say faith, you say grace. Grace explains the boldness of this man's confession. And nothing but grace. To say it differently, the reason they could not give this man to give up Christ is because Christ had a grip on him. That's the truth. What Jesus did to this man opening his eyes and that even deeper work that Jesus accomplished in his heart, Jesus had a hand in this confession. And he was bringing it out of this man's heart and through his mouth to the glory of God and the confession of the name Jesus. It might have looked to the Pharisees that they were contending against one man alone, but the Lord was on his side. And what shall I fear, the psalmist says. And that's what explains it with regard to us as well, so bold a confession as this. It's not of man. Even though it comes from our heart and through our mouths. We like to be liked. Which one of us naturally delights in the idea of dying, giving up ourselves, giving up our life, giving up our possessions, giving up our name, giving up our reputation for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's not natural to us according to the flesh. We're jealous for our name. If you want to see our natural propensity, then see Peter. 
the apostle himself, who was brought down before a servant girl and who denied his Lord three times. Well, Scripture has recorded that to teach us what we're like by nature. This is that same weakness that cleaves to Peter cleaves to us. And even now, how often are we not ashamed that we keep our mouths shut when we know very well that we ought to speak? And so that history teaches us the mercy of Christ as well, who pardons our iniquities and restores us to himself. By faith we make bold. By faith we know him, are convinced of him, say with the blind man, I was blind and now I see. This is my Lord and my God and my Savior, and I will not muzzle my mouth when his name is at stake. That's what the Apostle says. I believe, therefore I speak. We believe, therefore we have spoken. Think of Polycarp. That old martyr of the church, one of the first ones. Roman came up to him and said, Reproach Christ, render homage to Caesar. And he says, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he's, he's done me no injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? That's the boldness of confession of faith. And practically that means that when that pressure comes and that opposition comes, we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who gave himself for us, who has risen for us, who defends us, and who preserves us. And count it a privilege. Count it a privilege when we are given to confess his name and suffer the consequences thereof. Because it is a privilege to take his name upon our lips. And in John chapter 9, at the end, we learn what tender care the Lord has for us. John 9, verses 35 through 38, really Jesus now finishing his work that he had begun. Jesus bringing this man's faith to completion. He was cast out, this man. Picture him alone on the street. Probably not a friend by him fear of incurring the wrath of the Pharisees. Even his parents didn't say it. They already went home and left this man to fend for himself. And here he is now cast out. Public enemy. Outcast of society. And then those beautiful words in verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. He knew exactly why they had cast him out. He knew that this man had dared to confess his name. And Jesus came and he found him and he sought for him and he he found him there outside. And that beautiful dialogue that he has with this man, drawing his face, causing his face to blossom in Jesus distinctly now as the Messiah, the Son of God. So that this man says, Lord, I believe. And he worships him. The first time he had laid his eyes upon his great physician. And even that is a lesson for us as well because it teaches us that Jesus is not ignorant of what we experience confessing his name. He's not ignorant of what his disciples and his confessors go through confessing his name in this world. Not ignorant of the pain 
not ignorant of the law, but cares for us, gives grace and strength in time of need. He's with us, and his reward is with him. To them that confess his name before men. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, we thank thee for Holy Scripture and for illuminating our minds and hearts so that we see and know and believe the truth which thou hast revealed to us. We thank thee for the mighty gift of grace which thou hast wrought in our hearts, giving us eyes to see. Thank you for joining us unto thy Son, Jesus Christ. And now we beseech thee that thou wilt bless us as we continue on our pilgrimage tomorrow and in the week to come and the year that we might be faithful to thee, that we might make bold to confess thy name in the name of thy Son, that when the pressure and the opposition arises against us, that we might not fear, but rest assured, even as Stephen of old being stoned, that our Lord Jesus knows and sees and cares and loves us, and by faith, Father, cause us to stand fast in the evil day, having done all to stand. Pardon our sins and our iniquities. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us sing together Psalter number 71. Psalter number 71. We'll sing stanzas one, two, three, and five. One, two, three, and five. The fearlessness of faith, Psalter number 71.
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. 